0: scripture reading this morning is different than the one you see in the bulletin. Remember this portion of the story of God as it is written in the book that we love from Luke chapter 21 verses 5 to 11 and verses 25 through 38. And while some were talking about the temple that it was adorned with beautiful stones and votive gifts. He, that is Jesus, said, As for these things which you are looking at, the days will come in which there will not be one stone upon another which will not be torn down. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, when therefore will these things happen? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See to it that you are not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places plagues and famines, and there will be tremors and great signs from heaven. And in verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among the nations, and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens, Will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable Behold, a fig tree and all the trees, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourself that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell in the face of the earth, but keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Now during the day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet, and all the people would get up early in the morning to come into him in the temple to listen to him. The word of the Lord. Luke, like all of the Gospel writers, records Jesus' prophecies regarding the future, both the future of Jerusalem and in the near future of the disciples, as well as the future of all of creation and what we would call the end times. Luke's recounting makes as compared to say Matthew or Mark's or John's, Luke's recounting makes the clearest delineation between the future of Jerusalem and the future of all of creation. The verses I've chosen to look at in Luke 21 are those that speak to the future of creation, to our future. Jesus tells us that there will be a rising crescendo of chaos and violence in the politics of nations and in the very heavens themselves. In 9 and 10, he says, When you hear of wars and disturbances, do not be terrified, for these things must take place first, but the end does not follow immediately. Then he continued by saying to them, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And then again in 25 and 26, there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth, dismay among the nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken." There will be wars and turmoil between the nations. Now, we would say, well, when has there not not been? And we have seen throughout human history, particularly in the last century, an intensifying, the scope gets ever larger, and the intensity of the conflict becomes more destructive and more consuming. We are seeing history, all of human history, as kind of a rehearsal for where we're coming to. And the final closing act. Every nation will distrust its neighbor and instead of doing what it makes sense, what is rational and what's good for everyone, each will find an excuse to accuse and condemn their competitors and give full permission to their own nationalistic pride to mobilize their armies and to tear each other apart. Nature itself will throb with violence as earthquakes shake the foundations of our cities and of the earth itself. There will be plagues and famines that create destruction and despair. Our own recent experience with COVID has shown just how disruptive even a relatively moderate pandemic can be to the structures of the world, of, of society worldwide. But there will also be terrors and great signs from heaven, suggesting that the chaos we are experiencing is more than just a series of natural events. The very fabric of creation will shake and tear, revealing an unseen spiritual battle whose energies and violence is so disruptive that it spills over into what we call our world. Jesus also prophesies that counterfeit messiahs will spring up, claiming to be him. And apparently, believers themselves will be tempted to trust in the leadership of these self proclaimed messiahs. And Jesus says, See to it that you're not misled. So it must be that it's going to be a, a uh, temptation. See to it that you're not misled, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is near. Do not go near them. Back in chapter 17, when Jesus was talking about the future, Jesus warned us, saying, The days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. They will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them, for just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of sky all the way to the next, so will the Son of Man be in his day. What Jesus said in chapter 17 was that when he returns, it will be with such clear fanfare and holy cataclysm that no one will doubt that it is him. Kind of, I maybe used this example before. If you're outside at night and you hear howling and you wonder to yourself, is that a wolf or is that a coyote? It's probably a coyote. Because if you hear howling and the hair stands up on the back of your neck and you're thinking, how far am I after all from the car or the front door? That's a wolf. A lot of people will mistake a coyote for a wolf, but very few people mistake a real wolf for a coyote and Jesus is saying there is going to be no mistake no one will be able to ignore explain away or or pretend it isn't happening when I return it will be as apparent as lightning at night it, it happens at one end of the sky but it shines out over the whole sky when Jesus returns there won't be any question that it is him and yet we are, as I have just read, filled with such longing to be led and encouraged as the disciples and the people of Jesus' day were led and encouraged by Jesus when he was there. We'll be so longing to be led by a Messiah that we will be tempted by counterfeits. As a matter of fact, Our whole evangelical Christian celebrity culture is pretty much a testimony to our failure to take Jesus' warning seriously. And consequently, we are often misled and disappointed by those that we have put up on near messianic pedestals. In summary, Jesus says in verse 31, So you also, when you see these things happening... Recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Now, these things refer to the increase in both the scale and the intensity of distress and death occurring in the events of our world, as well as what the text describes as unnamed but undeniable signs of spiritual chaos in the heavens, of something going on that is bigger than our our space and time. Further, though while we may desire it intensely, with great longing in those days of trouble, the coming of Jesus, when it happens will not be to rescue and to restore the world we have known as our only home since our birth, but to rescue us, his people, from this world, because he says he's going to destroy it and create all things new. There is great hope in that, and there's great terror in it. The Apostle Paul wants us to pray, and he says this in his epistle to Timothy, he wants us to pray on a regular basis for the people and the leaders of all men everywhere, of all nations, that all of us, that the church, living as exiles in this world, might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Now, as Americans, we enjoy lives of great privilege, prosperity, and peace. Our life in this world is so good that we often plead that God would preserve it as it is. But Jesus taught us to pray that the kingdom of heaven would revive and resuscitate us would break into our lives and disrupt our lives with God's ways of righteousness, his justice, his life, his dream. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Perhaps the reason that God does not hear our prayers for revival, meager, and fitful as they may be, if they exist at all, perhaps the reason that God doesn't hear our prayers for revival is because we aren't praying that his kingdom would come and that his will would be done, but rather that he would establish us and our will within this kingdom, this kingdom that is a kingdom of death. True prayers for revival... First of all, involve asking God to reveal us to ourselves. To reveal where our hearts are cold and indifferent, maybe even obstinately disobedient to Him. And we don't see it because we don't want to see it. Our first prayer has to be that God would show us our sin so that we would know how to repent and become rededicated by the rejuvenating power of his spirit, that in our repentance we would throw ourselves into his hands to mold as he sees fits, so that we would be rededicated to his kingdom and his purposes. It isn't that we want too much. It's that we want too little, and mostly what we want is God to establish us and then leave us alone letting us go back to the good life that we can imagine for ourselves. Instead, Jesus directs and directs and redirects. He directs us to face our futures, which is actually his future, because he's the one shaping it, with hope and with courage, not in ourselves or our nations and societies in which we are exiled, but in his will and in his coming kingdom. Let me read verses 33 to 36 again. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that they will not come on you suddenly like a trap for it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. We are to be on guard and we are to pray. First of all, we're to be on guard. We're uh, to be on guard. First of all, he says, against dissipation, which is Drunkenness, base, basically, uh, not, I'm sorry, the hangover that accompanies drunkenness. Against dissipation and drunkenness. The pleasures of this life can obviously, and we're all pretty familiar with how this works. We find something that is a pleasure. And, and the pleasures in this life, by and large, almost all of them are gifts of God. Good gifts that he has given to us that we have exalted To put them in God's place. So they become our gods. They become our whole reason for living. These good things are destructive when they become idols into which we invest all of our imagination, our time, and our finances. The result is an enormous hangover of the soul that clouds our thinking and saps our courage. And we focus on these sins. These are, these are the real kind of sins. But then there's again, against, we're also to focus on being on guard against the worries of life. Now, we rarely hear excessive worry described as a sin whose wickedness is on par with drunkenness and dissipation. I know of churches that will expel members for idolatrous pleasures, and, and that is... That can be a very important discipline in church discipline. But I don't know of one that would even discipline a member who is consumed by the worries of life. I will bet you that more churches have been crippled by members who are caught up in the worries of life than members who are drunk. Churches die when their people worry about the world more than they hope in the Holy Spirit. Worry is the illusion that we are accomplishing something without the risk of actually doing anything. We are surrendering to the spirit of this age when we fret and we fume over our fears and our peeves. So we're to be on guard against drunkenness, dissipation, which is basically idolatry, and against the worries of life. And we are to be alert and pray. Specifically, we are to pray, as it says in verse 36, that we may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. The strength that Jesus refers to here suggests, when we first read it, that we should pray for the necessary strength to run away from all these events and to find a hiding place, a cave, that we can pull shut behind us, But if we look beyond this passage, if we take a look in Revelation, for instance, in Jesus' words to the seven churches of the world at that time, Jesus repeatedly admonishes the church to be overcomers. That is, not to run away, not to, to, to close their ears or run away from lies or to run away from temptations or to run away and hide from hardships and sufferings, but to refute the lies of the enemy, to refuse the temptations of this world, and to endure the hardships and sufferings of persecution so that we might triumph over them, to be overcomers. Jesus is not, I think, telling us to pray that we might escape hardship, although I do anyway, (laughs) just in case he's wondering if I'd really like to go through hardship but that we might escape the sin and death that stalks us in those hardships. The goal is to overcome the world, not so that we might rule it, but so that we might stand before the Son of Man. That we might stand before Jesus in that final day of his return and be pronounced faithful by him. That is our greatest goal and his greatest grace. Prayer is Jesus' idea of a best practice to prepare for any future. I know that some of you have joined small groups for Bible study and for prayer, and I commend you for it. I also know that women are much more likely to realize their need for this than men. I want to encourage you men to do the same. I'm old, and I miss some of the things that I was used to and took for granted. I miss the days when a large cross-section of the church used to gather midweek for prayer. I miss hearing the murmur of prayer when an evening service would break into small groups in the sanctuary to pray for the church and its community. I've heard all kinds of suggestions, and I've given all kinds of suggestions, about how we, might inco- how we might counter this weakness and repair this deficiency. But most of the suggestions have to do with formats and practices. In other words, they're kind of dig- different sugar coatings that we can put on the pill of prayer. I don't know what will motivate people to set aside the time to make the effort to travel into church, and then to do the actual work of praying. I, I don't know because I know for myself what a challenge it is. We've had Wednesday prayer time up until last winter. And, and I faced many in the last 15 years, I faced many of those Wednesday nights thinking, oh, that's right, tonight's prayer time. I faced Wednesday night group prayer with a certain amount of personal resistance at time. And why is that? Well, because it's work. It's work to stay focused. It's work to get focused and then stay focused, seeking God. And it's work to try to mesh our hearts and minds to His. And God has decided that He is not going To reward the hard work of our prayer by displaying some spectacle of His holiness and His glory by way of thanking us for our faithfulness to Him. For some reason, this work is important to Him, and it's been work for the 2,000 years that we've been trying to do it as Christians. I don't always look forward to Wednesday night prayer, but I was always blessed by the effort I made, and I was thankful for the group of people that I spent the evening praying with. I never went home thinking, well, that was a waste of time. Now. I hope you are all finding a way to exercise this spiritual discipline and privilege. But if you are not exercising your prayer muscles, including group prayer as well as individual, then you will be hard-pressed if the future that Jesus describes in today's passage falls on our generation. I'll just close by saying that End times are in the future of everyone in this sanctuary, whether it is our end or the end. Our hope will not be much of a hope. It is, our hope is not founded on the amount of social power that we as believers can exercise over our society. Our best, most enduring, most sustaining hope and all of our peace is based on the quality of our relationship with the coming king. A young man asked me when I was a hospital, I was chaplain in a group of adolescents who were suffering from cystic fibrosis years and years ago, and he asked me to come in, and when I came in, he said, how do I get ready to die? And I think I've shared this uh, at some point with uh, some of you anyway. And he would indeed, I'll call him John, John would die in the next 48 hours. And he said, how do I get ready? And I told him, you need to turn your heart to God, talk to him, because he's right here right now and ask for his salvation. We had had some discussions but for the most part He had avoided it, and now he needed to catch up for lost, make up for lost time. And he said, I feel like such a hypocrite. And I said, listen, you've never had any more to give God that he wanted than you have right here and right now. Yourself. It's all he's ever wanted. And you have that to give him right now. You wouldn't be, if if you had gone to church regularly, if you'd taken who you are spiritually seriously before, you wouldn't probably be as frightened right now as you are. God wouldn't be quite the stranger that he is right now. But he does love you and he's waiting. Now I don't don't know what he did. Um, But the point is that we need to make use of the time now and not put everything off to the day of need. When the day of need comes, we will be so far behind the eight ball that we may be overmastered by our fears. We may be discouraged by our ignorance of who our God is. Learning to pray, learning that it's not magic, Learning that God isn't some magic genie waiting to do whatever we ask Him to do, whenever we ask Him to do it, and to struggle with that, and yet to find that He does answer prayer, to find that He does do miraculous things. But to learn that that is not a struggle of magic, an incantation, that is the wrestling between people, that is a building of a relationship. That's what you need to be taken seriously right now because there's not all the time. There's only the time that there is, and there's not going to be more of it. So make good use of that time. Be alert. The world needs more alerts. Yeah, I know. Be alert. Pray. Don't let your life, don't let the pleasures of this life distract or derail you. And don't let the worries of this life smother you in your sleep. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that the future that you have made for us is one that we can look forward to. It it terrifies us, Lord God, because the world that we know, the world that we love and have found love in, the world that we have found you in, is has a remarkable amount of goodness still in it. And we can imagine that. It's hard for us to imagine what you have waiting that would be so much better that you're looking forward to unveiling it. But we trust in you, we wait on you, and we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us to wait on you and to trust you even more. For we ask this in Christ's name, amen.